0: a king taking a dump in a cave, a fool losing his wife and Israel's greatest general turning against his own people. Listeners are in for a treat as the twists and turns of Saul's reign reach a pitiful crescendo. These are some of the most exciting pages of the Bible and some of its most human as readers can see Saul's life and his sanity unravel and as Saul's star fades that of David rises he may be on the run but the shepherd from bethlehem is now king in all but name my name is chaz bayfield and this is holy bible episode 67 the fool and his wife back Bible fans, it's great to have you on board. I'll be honest, the books of Samuel are possibly my favourite of all the Bible 66 books. Mind you, every book I've covered so far has felt for a time like my favourite. Maybe I'm just a bit fickle, but there's a lot to love, especially in this episode. After all, how many other kings have stories written about them having a poo? Before we go on, I should say to new listeners that my belief is that Bible is for everyone, not just religious people, which is why I've produced this podcast. These stories are just too good to be kept a secret. So let's get back to Saul. Advance warning, he's not happy. As long as Saul is alive, David is not safe and needs to remain one step ahead of his furious king. He may be on the run, but David is still an Israelite commander. When he learns that the Philistines are raiding the border towns of Keilah, he asks God if it's appropriate for him to launch a counter-attack. This no doubt involves the use of the Urim and Thummim, the primitive system of yes-no derived by rolling stones or drawing lots. David's newfound followers are amazed at his fighting talk. They're scared enough in their own country, and now he wants them to fight Philistines. David checks in with God a second time, and convinced that Keilah will be liberated, the men attack, winning an emphatic victory and driving the Philistines away. Readers are told that Abiathar, the sole survivor from the massacre at Nob, has brought along the ephod, the ornate bejeweled tunic worn by Israel's high priest, suggesting that worship of God continues in Israel despite the attack on its sanctuary. Saul is delighted that David is now in a city which is easy to besiege, and he heads there with his army. When David is tipped off about Saul's plans, he asks for the ephod which he uses to divine what he believes is God's plan. The Urim and Thummim are kept in a special pocket in the garment. The answer he gets is that the city will do anything to save its own skin and that despite having been rescued by David and his troops, its people will readily hand them over to Saul. Unsurprisingly, the men beat a hasty retreat as Saul continues to hunt them down. Now, with his troops numbering 600, David hides out in remote strongholds and the book interprets his ability to evade Saul as an act of divine intervention. The suggestion is very much that David is God's chosen king, even though his reign has not officially begun, which is why he rolls sixes and Saul only ever rolls ones and twos. When Saul traces him to a desert hideout some 25 miles south of Gibeah, David is alerted to the danger. Jonathan meets him there and assures his friend that Saul can't touch him. David will be Israel's king, he promises, and in the new world order, Jonathan will be his second in command. This is a fact which, according to Jonathan, Saul is already aware of, but one which he clearly has yet to come to terms with. It's a flying visit. And, after the two men make a solemn promise to rule Israel together, Jonathan leaves David in the fortified desert town of Ziph, where he remains in hiding. Sensing an opportunity, some of the locals who have remained loyal to Saul tip the king off that his enemy is with them, and volunteer to hand him over. Not wanting his prey to escape yet again, Saul wants detailed intel on all David's movements so that he can flush him out. One step ahead, David disappears into the arid desert south of the Dead Sea, known as the Arabah, but Saul remains in pursuit. With the king's army on one side of a mountain, closing in on David and his men who are on the other, a face-off is inevitable. Just as it looks impossible for David to avoid confrontation, Saul gets word that the Philistines have invaded his territory again. As Israel's king, national security is more important than personal grudges, and so Saul temporarily diverts to lead his troops into battle against the enemy. Safe for the moment, David makes for the mountainous country on the western shore of the Dead Sea, where he and his army hole up in what the Bible calls the wilderness stronghold of En Gedi. The ancient city of Ziph, some 20 miles south of Jerusalem, occupied a conical hill rising out of a forest, and it is believed that this is what is meant by wilderness stronghold. And if your brain can't cope with imperial measurements, I put the metric ones in the show notes. Once Saul has finished fending off Philistines, he goes back to chasing his adversary like a cartoon cat intent on catching a cartoon mouse. Like a carnivore craving meat, Saul can't help himself from hunting David. When he receives a tip-off that his rival has gone to ground at En-Gedi, he sets off with 3,000 men to finish him off. In a moment of perfect comic timing, the king stops in a cave to relieve himself without realising that David and his men are hiding in the shadows at the back of the same cave. David's men are thrilled, believing that God has finally handed their enemy over to them. But, rather than attack, David creeps up to the squatting monarch and snips off a corner of his cloak. He has proven to himself that he could have killed Saul, but is immediately racked with guilt. Saul is God's anointed king, and David feels like he has done something sacrilegious. He tells his men off for egging him on, and forbids anyone to lay a hand on Saul. The dictionary definition of a sitting target, Saul continues his toileting oblivious that he has just escaped assassination. Once Saul is at a safe distance from the cave, David shows himself and calls out the astonished king. He throws himself to the ground, an act of submission, and asks Saul how he can now still believe anyone who says he is intent on harming him. David shows Saul the torn cloth from his cloak telling him that God led him into the cave and into very genuine danger. David asks God to punish Saul for the wrong that he has done to David, but swears that he will not lay a hand on him personally. David refers himself to a dead dog and a flea, something not worth pursuing, and asks God to judge between them and to vindicate him by helping him escape Saul's ongoing attempts to kill him. Now it is Saul's turn to feel conscience stricken. He breaks down and appears filled with remorse. He seems overwhelmed that David didn't kill him when he could and realises how appallingly he has treated his general. He shares his hope that God will reward David for sparing him and acknowledges that David will be the king who defines Israel's monarchy. Saul makes David swear on oath that, when this happens, he will not wipe out his family as is common when one dynasty overthrows another. David promises, and he and his men retreat behind the fortifications of En Gedi, which historians believe is close to the region of Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in a cave in 1948. The book that bears Samuel's name announces that he has died and that the whole nation mourns him and attends his funeral in Ramah. The last of the judges believed to have been appointed by God to lead Israel, as well as the first of its prophets, is dead. And the nation is now at the mercy of a deeply troubled king who sees internal enemies where there are none. Meanwhile, with his life still in danger from Saul, David continues hiding out in the desert. By now, it is sheep shearing season. A wealthy farmer named Nabal has taken his vast flock of sheep and goats to be shorn. On the run and in need of food, it would have been easy for David and his men to overpower any band of shearers they see and take the animals for food, especially as David is a famous general in the king's army. Instead, David sends 10 of his men to ask Nabal for hospitality. The Bible describes Nabal as surly and mean, and he doesn't care that David has shown restraint towards him and his livestock. Incredibly, Nabal has never heard of David and, assuming that he is just like any other servant who has gone rogue from his master, he refuses to give him and his companions a bed for the night. The farmer's flat rebuff is a genuine affront to David, who decides to attack Nabal's farm with 400 soldiers, a move that is only averted thanks to a timely intervention by Nabal's quick-thinking wife, Abigail. A servant tells her that David and his men not only didn't raid their animals, but formed a defensive wall around them day and night while they were being sheared. When she hears that her husband's pig-headedness is about to see the farm obliterated, she steps in. Abigail is described as intelligent and beautiful, and cooks up a heap of cakes and other goodies which are brought to David and his men without her husband knowing. David is deeply unhappy with Nabal's behaviour, All his goodwill has been repaid with hostility, he says, and he vows to God that he will now destroy every man on the farm. As he rides towards it to unleash hell, Abigail intercepts him, apologising for her idiot husband. Nabal's name actually means fool. Bowing face down, she pleads with David not to get carried away with his anger and assures him that she had no idea of the kindness which he had shown to their shepherds. Offering him the treats which she has brought with her, she reels off a lengthy spiel in a bid to ingratiate herself. David's dynasty will run and run because his battles are God's battles, she says. He will never do wrong as long as he lives. God will keep him alive while terminating his enemies and, thanks to his restraint today, he won't have this needless bloodshed on his conscience once he becomes king. Abigail's final request is that David remembers her when his fortune changes for the better. It's an effective speech and David tells the woman that her good judgment has spared her people from bloodshed. When Abigail returns home, Nabal is in the middle of a feast and is drunk as a lord, oblivious to the danger which he has just placed everyone in. When his wife tells him how close he sailed to the wind the next morning, the shock leads to him suffering some kind of stroke. Ten days later, Nabal dies, an event described by the Bible as an act of God. David is overjoyed that he feels God has vindicated him and judged Nabal. The man died without him needing to lift a finger. Being on the run for his life may not seem the best time to fall in love, especially as he is already married. In his anger, Saul has snatched his daughter Michal back from David and has given her to another man. In the meantime David has acquired another wife called Ahinoam. Still the door is now wide open for a romantic ending to David and Abigail's story. It is a satisfying one. Polygamy is clearly not a big deal in Israel and Abigail wastes no time in leaving Nabal's farm to join David's growing harem. Having already betrayed David once The spiteful Ziphites continue to leak information to Saul, telling him where his enemy can be found. David may have spared Saul's life and demonstrated to him that he has no plans to harm him, but the king can't help himself and returns to his plan A of wiping out his rival. Again, he rounds up 3,000 elite troops and camps at David's last known location, a hill in the wilderness between Hebron and the Dead Sea. Always one step ahead, David remains in the desert and sends scouts to locate the army camp. David even goes on a sortie himself to find where Saul and his army commander Abner will be sleeping. Later, under cover of darkness, David and one of his lieutenants, Abishai, slip into the camp and walk right up to the king. Abishai is the son of David's sister and so is his nephew. Saul is asleep with his spear stuck into the ground near his head, and Abner and other soldiers are nearby, also sleeping. Abishai wants to run Saul through with his spear, but killing God's chosen king is strictly off-limits for David. He believes that this is God's job. Saul will die in battle or from disease, or God will strike him down himself, he says. Instead, he grabs the king's spear and water jug and leaves the camp unseen. The deep sleep of Saul and his army is one of many phenomena in the account of David's life that the Bible puts down to an act of God. In an almost carbon copy of the earlier events in the cave, David waits until he's a safe distance away on top of a hill, then calls out to Abner, waking him. He holds up the spear and asks why the commander hasn't taken better care of the king who God has chosen for Israel. Abner and his men deserve to die for this act of gross negligence, he says, before asking the commander to look for Saul's spear and water jug. Saul steps up, recognising David's voice, and David asks him what he can possibly have done to have Saul pursue him so relentlessly. He tells Saul that if God has ordered the king to pursue him, then he will make a sacrifice to him. If it is people who are driving Saul to try and kill him, then all bets are off, he says, calling on God to curse these haters. Because of them, he has been forced away from Israel and into regions where pagan worship is rife, endangering his spiritual well-being. If Saul remains intent on killing him, David asks for it to happen with God looking on, demonstrating his approval. However, he remains incredulous that the king has come out so over-equipped. The metaphor he uses is that Saul has brought weapons to hunt a partridge that haunts the precipitous cliff edges of the Dead Sea, when what he actually needs to kill is a flea. Chastened, Saul acknowledges that he has acted like an idiot and vows that he'll at least try not to hurt David again. As apologies go, it's a relatively weak one. David tells the king to send one of his young soldiers to fetch his spear and tells him that God gave him the opportunity to kill him but he held back because he believes that God chose Saul to be Israel's king. To David, Saul's life is sacrosanct and he asks God to place the same value on his own life. Saul blesses the man who he sees as his rival, promising him that great things will happen to him. It's a tragedy that Saul cannot appreciate that David is his true heir apparent, and that instead of nurturing him and preparing him to rule, he chooses to hunt him and kill him. Saul returns to Gibeah knowing that he is lucky to be alive, but David isn't taking any chances with his unhinged leader and remains in the desert. With his paranoid king still hell-bent on hunting him down, David believes that it is safer to live among Israel's enemies than he is in his own country. Concerned for his well-being if he remains in Israel, David escapes to the Philistine city of Gath with his 600 men. The last time David was here, he feigned madness, but the mood has clearly changed. David is no longer a Philistine target. He takes his two wives with him, and his men also bring their families and he asks permission from Gath's king for a place to live in the countryside. David tells his host that he is unfit to live in the royal city with kings and princes, and is given the city of Ziklag, which becomes an Israelite outpost in Philistine country. When Saul hears that his enemy has crossed the border, he stops looking for him. David spends over a year in Philistine territory and carries out a number of successful raids on neighbouring kingdoms, bringing the spoils of war back to his grateful ruler. David lies that these raids are on Israelite towns and Gath's king Achish is suitably deceived. With every last man, woman and child in these towns killed by David's troops, no one can report back to the king that the attacks weren't actually against Israel. Confident that David's people will now never want him back, Achish assumes that his new best friend will have to remain in exile forever. Alarmingly for David, the king makes him his bodyguard for life and orders him and his men to accompany him into a battle against Israel. This is more than a little compromising for David, Israel's most loyal soldier, but he refuses to break cover and agrees to work for the king. This is the first time in several books that the Bible has become an absolute page-turner, with readers wondering exactly how David is going to get out of this particular fix without killing thousands of his own people. Back in Israel, the Philistines remain an ominous threat to national security, and Saul is concerned. The Philistine army have penetrated deep into Israelite territory, occupying a hill in the plains of Jezreel in the tribal lands of Issachar terrified saul gathers his army on a hill some 3 miles away and uses the urim and thummim in an attempt to divine how the battle will go the suggestion is that god has abandoned him especially when he has given no revelatory dreams and no prophet steps forward with a concrete plan of what he should do time Is to be running out for Saul. Can Israel's king get it together and reverse Samuel's decision to replace him? Has he got enough left in the tank to turn things around and remain king? And will David accompany the Philistines into an attack against his own country? The first book of Samuel reaches its dramatic climax next time. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. And the exciting news if you're enjoying the podcast, you can also read the podcast as a book. Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible, is available on Amazon. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search Holy Bible Podcast. And if you like what you hear, why not give us a five star review? wherever you're listening. Thank you.